Quick note here before the episode begins, this conversation was a bit longer than most of the other ones I've had, and I thought because of the nature of some of the directions it goes, uh, it might be hard to take in all at once. There's a lot that's talked about, so I'm going to split this episode into two parts. Uh, the first part will get posted this week, obviously, and then the second part of this conversation will get posted next week, and then hopefully after that, I will have recorded the second portion of this discussion because we're talking about two ends of the spectrum here in this little series that I'm trying to do. So hopefully by then I'll get ready to cut that conversation up and post it. Um, and who knows, however long that might go, it might get split up into two parts as well. But either way, um, this is the first part of the discussion, Did Jesus Preach the Gospel? The Fundamentalist Perspective. Next week will be part two, and then we'll continue on with this series after that. Again, thank you guys very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. King Kami's look out, tell him look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets, but Stevie's inner visions touch Welcome to the Belfast Podcast, the podcast dedicated to those deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. I'm your host, Luke Byler, and today I've got well, I guess I'd call you a friend now. Yeah. Uh, I've known you from afar for a while. Uh, you've done some teaching at the church that I've really enjoyed. Just your the way you think, the way you attack the text, I thought was uh, much around the things I'd been learning. Um, so I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, come to find that for each of us, tobacco seems to be our drug of choice. <laughs> we both uh, love N.T. Wright. Um, like I said, our minds work pretty similarly. Um, and discussion with you is always challenging and seems to be edifying. And that's, those are the best kind. Yeah. I so, appreciate it. It's, yeah. it's been fun to get to know you. Um, yeah. My name's Alex. Yeah. And um, I, yeah, I'm not a scholar, not a theologian, but I love to study and I love to dig deeper and to read and to think about things that, that are difficult. So yeah, it's been fun to get to know you and to have some conversations. I look forward to, to getting to share with other folks that conversation a little bit too. Yeah. So today we we wanted to attack a question that I think is going to take a couple episodes to unpack. Um, and like I've said, you know, before we started recording, I've said this to other people, it's like, I'd rather take a topic and pick one part of it and go deep rather than, you know, skim the surface of a wide, um, a wide question. So uh, we'll start with the wider question and then go into the specifics of how we want to attack it this week. But it started with something around what we've been talking about here at church for a while and um, conversation me and you had had. And then you said a couple of days ago, you'd ask yourself this question ever since you got saved at 15. So give us some of that story, what brought you to the question, and then we'll we'll start unpacking it. Yeah, I, I wasn't really introduced to to what I would later refer to as the gospel until I was a teenager. And I remember <clears throat> walking into a church and, and hearing for the first time that even though I was a sinner, messed up, broken, in need of forgiveness, that God loved me enough to take on flesh, to send his son to die for me on the cross. And that if he rose again from the dead the same way, I could have hope in new life. Hit the ground running, started praying, started reading my Bible, started diving in. I remember sitting in my bedroom as a teenager, reading the gospels, and I was frustrated because Jesus never seems to lead anybody to salvation in the way that was new and, and introduced to me. He never taught people to pray the prayer of salvation, to ask Jesus into their heart. 
he seemed obsessed with this idea of the kingdom. And, and he even referred to his kingdom message, this kingdom message, the kingdom of God as the gospel. And I remember being confused, like, why was Jesus's gospel different than the gospel I had accepted and prayed? And why, why were there seemingly two gospels and what did they have to do with one another? And yeah, it was just, it was frustrating to me as a teenager. And it took me years and years and years to kind of work through and process through. And I'm still in many ways walking in that, that tension. Yeah. So um, go ahead and give us the two like texts that you saw as the, um, let's say, main, I don't even say, no, the two like bookends basically sure. that you were wrestling with. Yeah, and absolutely. So we'll go from there. So a great, a great, we could pick many, but a great one to start with would be Mark one fifteen. Very first words out of Jesus' mouth. He shows up on the scene, first words of Jesus out of the gospel, repent and believe the good news, the kingdom of God is at hand. Or this term good news, right? It's the same word gospel. It's where we get our, our term gospel. Kind of in contrast or seemingly in contrast, you have famous passages like 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, this is the gospel I first preached to you, the death and resurrection of Jesus according to the scriptures. And, and so for me as a young man, it's like, okay, well, which is it? Is it something about the death and resurrection and its salvific work on me? Or is it something about God is doing in a kingdom? And, and yeah, how do these two, what do they have to do with one another? So yeah, there, there's two, two pictures here and, and, and it was confusing for me for sure. Yeah. So, um, if you could to kind of set the stage for us, um, the, the time that you heard the gospel preached to you and when, when you were a teenager and what you accepted, kind of unpack the what was around it, what was it that was said, what was seemed to be the main points yeah. of it. So I think at the end of the day, and a lot of this comes out of a great conversation I've had recently with, with one of our pastors here, Kevin Hartman, but Thinking about the purpose of the gospel when I was a teenager, in my mind, was to save me from hell, to save me for heaven. Mm -hmm. And the gospel had everything to do with my personal destination. Um, and because of that very self, I won't say self-centered, but self-focused mm -hmm. understanding of what the gospel is, sort of this peripheral idea of what what. God is doing and bringing a kingdom didn't really have anything to do with my personal destination. So for me, I think a huge part of it, part of this journey, this pro process has been me understanding that at the end of the day, the, the Jesus's gospel isn't focused on me, about me even. It's about him, who, who God is and what he's accomplishing. And, and that begins to turn this page into what, what does Jesus have in mind when he says the gospel? And comes come to understand more richly even what Paul was referring to in 1 Corinthians 15. What is happening with the death and resurrection of Jesus? What is this bleeding to, building to? What is this a part of? What does it mean according to the scriptures? So there's a lot going under the surface there that I brought a set of assumptions, and, and I think a lot of us do, that we read a passage and we assume it's about whether we go to heaven or hell, well, really there's something much richer and even more beautiful going on. 
Yeah. And so that's really, thank you for um, putting it that way. Cause I think that really helps kind of set the stage of the dialogue that we want to have between these two ideas. Um, and this week we specifically want to focus on um, what are some of those sets of assumptions that we bring about our personal destination or our personal inner salvation, right. um, kind of the right and the right wing section of that yeah. gospel. We'll get to maybe some of that dichotomy in a second. Um, but uh, I heard this and, and I'll get to some of our resources here and I'll, I'll post all the stuff that we're referencing sure. throughout this podcast in the, uh, in the description. Um, but I heard a, a teaching uh, from a guy named uh, Sky Dutani who's been one of the leader, leading influences in my life over the past couple of years. And it was, his sermon was called, What is the Gospel? And he starts with a reference to a uh, article from a pretty big Christian publication that asked a number of, uh, a number of pastors and leaders in Christianity in America, what is, what is the gospel? in seven words or less. And so I'm actually going to read a little bit of a, of an article here that kind of set the stage for this end of the conversation we're going to have, starting with some of the assumptions we come into, uh, especially as Western Americans with uh, what the gospel is. So uh, this is from, this is from that article. Uh, and I love this opening story. It says, Dale Moody once said, I can write the gospel on a dime. Many of us were raised with the primary question of personal evangelism. If you had less than a minute in an elevator with someone, how would you share the gospel? So how would you summarize the gospel, the very heart of the Christian message, in seven words? A recent cover story from 2012 of the Christian Century, the magazine of mainline Protestantism, put that question to several leading pastors and theologians. The writer David Hume begins, uh, this is a great story, in his autobiography, Brother to a Dragonfly, Will Campbell recalls how his friend, P.D. East, had badgered him for a sufficient definition of Christianity. East did not want a long or fancy explanation. I'm not too bright, he told Campbell. Keep it simple. In ten words or less, what's the Christian message? Campbell obliged his friend. We're all bastards, but God loved us, loves us anyway, he said. To which East replied, if you want to try again, you have two words left. Campbell and East eventually had an extended conversation provoked by Campbell's summary. It had, struck, it had stuck in East's mind. He wasn't sure. He bought it, but it gave him something to think about. So the Christian Century surveyed answers asking leaders to summarize the gospel in seven words or less, and I'll read some of them to you now. God, through Jesus Christ, welcomes you anyhow. We are the church of infinite chances, divinely, um, divinely persistent, God really loves us. In Christ, God's yes defeats our no. Christ's humanity occasions our divinity. We live by grace. We are who God says we are. Wisdom become flesh, spirit roars, life transform. To dwell in possibility. The wall of hostility has come down. And there's more to read here, but you get the picture. And I think something that we were pointing out and was, was pointed out in Sky's message was they're, they're all very different. They all can be justified by scripture, which is a good thing. Um, but I mean, even just let's take the first couple. Um, 
God through Jesus Christ welcomes you anyhow. We are the church of infinite chances. Um, divinely persistent. God really loves us in Christ. God just defeats our no. Christ humanity occasions our divinity. We live by grace. We are, we are who God says we are. Um, the only one that doesn't have we or are or you in it is this one, the next one, which is uh, wisdom became flesh, spirit roars, life transformed. Um, and Israel's God, Israel's God's bodied love continues world making. That one might be that one the might, most might be getting a little getting yeah. closer. Um, but point is that not all, but many of them have the words we are you. Um, they seem to be very focused on what God is doing. For, for you. us. And, there, and, and it's not bad. It's not bad because there, there is absolutely, mercifully, thankfully, our salvation, who we are, what's happening in us, our eternal destiny is absolutely part of God's story of what he's doing. But, you know, in a funny way, Jesus's gospel in seven words is the kingdom of God is at hand. That's <laughs> nothing mm -hmm. to do with us. It has to do with who he is and what God is accomplishing in this world. So, you know, we fit into that. Mm -hmm. But the story is not ultimately about us. And, and I think that's a, a pretty big fundamental shift. It's hard for a lot of Christians because we, our whole assumption of, of what Christianity is has been about us and, and our eternal destination. And those things are important. They're hugely important. But there's a bigger, richer, deeper story going on that is, is less self-centered. So, Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of like a of a good and like story analogy where it's because I mean, we're talking about the gospel. The gospel is, uh, Jesus saying something's at hand, something that you've been waiting for is now here in, in me, in, in the right. Messiah, which is that like, that's the story of the gospel seem to be telling is that this Jesus was the fulfillment of Israel's waiting yeah. Messiah. And, and, and it wasn't about, it wasn't about believers going to heaven. It mm -hmm. was about heaven, you know, whatever that means, God's divine space breaking through into our world. It was something that was and has come here, not mm -hmm. about somewhere we are someday maybe going. So yeah, very different paradigm shift than, than I think what we hear a lot of times any given Sunday. Um, you know, it, what's interesting to me too, is I think about like the opening words of the gospel of Mark. Mark, Mark comes out of the gate saying, this is what the book is about. He says, this is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. What you're about to see in this story is the gospel as was written in Isaiah, the prophet. So what's going on here? Why, why Isaiah, right? What, what's interesting to me is this isn't something that just Jesus made up and was a brand new theme. Like you said, Mark is tying into this, this Isaiah good news gospel, beautiful on the mountain are the feet is the feet of the one who brings the good news, the gospel who says to Zion, your God reigns as King. Jesus is coming and announcing that this kingdom that you have been waiting for, this kingdom of God bringing restoration and rule is now at hand. It's happening now. And to Jesus, that's the good news. That's his central message. And interestingly, you know, you look in the first chapter of Acts, after the resurrection, before the ascension, Jesus spends 40 days teaching on the kingdom. Like that's the last thing he does. He doesn't explain like what's the afterlife like or what, 
what the mysteries of the universe is. He didn't even like at least explain to the disciples, like, how are you supposed to establish a church and govern it and rule? He spends the whole time talking about the kingdom. Right. That was his whole message. It, you know, so why was he so obsessed with this thing? This story of, of, of Israel's God and their representative king ruling on earth, establishing this eternal kingdom to Jesus. That's what it was all about. And what's interesting is if we're followers of Christ, shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't that be the thing that we're about? The thing we're announcing as heralds, as ambassadors, as kingdom messengers is declaring that the kingdom of God is here. So yeah, it's a very different perspective and it, and it begins us to really take apart how we approach, even how we just come to passages of scripture. You know, I think about, I think about uh, John three and, and, and Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the middle of the night and asking about this kingdom. And Jesus is explaining how to, how to be a part of this kingdom and how to have a part in the age to come. And as a young believer, I'm always have read this passage as Jesus, Jesus explaining to Nicodemus how to go to heaven when he mm -hmm. dies. That's not what's going on there. <laughs> but we come with that set of assumptions because of how deeply ingrained in us what the gospel is. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think, I know I'm not the only one who's probably made this analogy, and I've probably heard Tim say it. I'm somewhere back in my brain, Tim Mackey. But um, our focus on a, Paul, a certain slice of a Pauline gospel, really, um, of our sanctification, of our substitutionary atonement and all that uh, is like, it's kind of like only watching Return of the Jedi. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe even our obsession with New Testament and, you know, the epistles or even like, I know churches that really just preach a lot of Paul. It's like only being well, not concerned with, because it's, it's it's disingenuous to say that. But my point is that much of the focus on our side of the gospel, or what the gospel does for us as What's individuals, us? Yeah, yeah, is is much like only ever seeing the first trilogy in Star Wars, um, and not saying like, oh, it's cool, like it does a lot for me. It's the best ones of them, which we can argue that. But my but my point is like it's it's like saying, oh, well, those prequels, they don't aren't important or they don't further the story or whatever. When they they're not great movies, but at least it's Lucas trying to say something like, Oh, well, this is how these things that happened. It's it, the analogy's falling apart a right, little but, bit. But, but you get but my let point. Me, let me put it in, in this context. Go ahead. You know, I think oftentimes we see um, we see the gospels as the warm-up act or the background, the prequel to the actual gospel message of the epistles, mm -hmm. instead of the gospels being the good news proclamation, and then the epistles kind of working out of that. We, it, it's almost as if this is the warm-up act. Yeah, there's a virgin birth, and then he died and resurrected. Now let's get down to business. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, but what about all that stuff in the middle? It's like, yeah, okay, so you say warm-up act, it makes me think, like, yeah, it's it's the opener for the 
the guy you came to see or the thing right. you came to right the book of romans of. yeah <laughs> which is amazing but right so yeah and, and and i think that kind of that thinking leads leads a young teenager like i was to going how come how come we don't have this you know confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that jesus is lord and you will be saved language coming out of jesus's mouth in mm -hmm. the gospels yeah um and it's not that it's not there. I mean, there, there are beautiful passages where, you know, thinking about Mark 10, son of man didn't come to be served, but to, but to serve, serve and to give his life. For his life for so, and there's some Psalm, mm -hmm. you know, some Isaiah 53 pieces. There's some places where you can draw that together for sure, but you're reaching to say that that's, that's the central, you know, the, the only central thing going on there in the gospels. So yeah, and, and and how do we not divorce the two? How do we see them working together in lockstep? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, something that came up as we were kind of out trying to outline this, because um, we kept as we talked, I was like, okay, but how did we get here? Right. How how did this happen? At least in our context, which you know is. American Middle America, even church, yeah, American church, Western civilization, church. evangelicalism. I mean, we, I don't, do we live in the Bible Belt technically? Yeah. 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 I mean, we live in Middle America, Missouri. Um, I used to really live in the Bible Belt when I lived in. We have uh, to drive past multiple churches to get to the closest liquor store. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I lived in Springfield, yeah, I really lived in the yeah. Bible Belt too. So, and that's two hours away from here. So we, but we were asking like, well, how did this come about? And just kind of give me a little bit of what, what you said before that led us to. Yeah. And again, I, I, I confess freely, I'm not a historian or specifically a church historian, but you know, there's a sense in which there's been a huge division in the last hundred, hundred plus years in the American church. You sort of have these mainline denominations that evangelicals would call liberal Christians that have departed away from a, a strong, whatever we would consider a strong stent, stance on Scripture. biblical inerrancy. Mm -hmm. and, and they've embraced sort of more social justice movement or even social gospel saying that, you know, what, what matters is the living out of this gospel and, and the loving people and the caring for their needs. And then sort of in this weird response to that, you have fundamentalism evangelicalism that says, yeah, poverty is a big deal, but what really matters is spiritual poverty. What really matters is knowing where you're going when you die. What really matters is being able to trust the scriptures. Um, and what happens is you've got these two, two interlocking pieces that are kind of divorced from one another, right? Uh, I mean, the gospel is always supposed to be about justice. It's about love. It has to be obviously loving God and loving one another. That's that's part of this gospel message, but there's also spiritual truth to here. You know, and I think about what we were talking about, you know, as far as the difference between the gospel of Jesus and sort of this gospel of Paul. And what's funny in these two camps is you, you have one camp that is sort of this social justice um, camp that says, you know, and, and this is, this is, you know, N.T. Wright talks about this and I, he says it better than I ever could, but that this, this group sees Jesus's life and his work and his healing and his miracles and his care for the, the poor. And it's like, man, he was off to such a good start. It's too bad he had to die. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which for evangelicals, we laugh at that. That's hysterical. 
And then <laughs> yeah. on, on the evangelical side, you know, the right side, you have this, man, it's a shame Jesus never preached the gospel. Yeah. You know? And, and so these two pieces never see one another. And, and we, you know, or at least I've grown up more in this, mm-hmm. this right, yeah. right so side. Yeah. Um, yeah. So where, where I'd like to go with kind of maybe the remainder of this conversation is kind of um, really digging in on, okay, what with that frame of here's where this split seemed to happen, this schism, um, why did it come about? What have been some of the, again, like, we've kind of hit on already, but some of the consequences of it. Um, and then the other, maybe we can get into this at the end to talk about what we, because if, if you think we're just going to hammer on the right side of it now, we want to talk about the left side of it next week. So, um, but yeah, kind of what are some of the responses been in that or some of the sub things that have, you know, tried to merge the two more or less. Um, but we were just doing some, more Poking ground around. yeah more ground research on fundamentalism and there's a Britannica article um about it and I'll, again I'll link it below but uh uh I'll just I'll just read the first two paragraphs of that and then we can kind of go into some points that they make later because I think it's important to understand the historical context of of this if we're going to think about it rightly and think about it um Give it, give the devil its due. Mm-hmm. Let's say um, it says Christian fundamentalism movement and American Protestantism that arose in the late 19th century, in reaction to theological modernism, which aimed to revise traditional Christian beliefs to accommodate new developments in the natural and social sciences, especially the theory of biological evolution. In keeping with traditional Christian doctrines concerning biblical interpretation, the mission of Jesus Christ, and the role of the church in society fundamentalist affirmed a core of Christian beliefs that included the historical accuracy of the Bible, the imminent and physical second coming of Jesus and Christ's virgin birth, resurrection and atonement. Fundamentalism began, fundamentalism began a significant phenomenon in the early 20th century that remained an influential movement in American society in the 21st century. Fundamentalist worship practices which are heavily influenced by revivalism, usually feature a sermon with congregational singing and prayer, um, though there can be considerable variations from denomination to denomination. Although fundamentalists are not notably aesthetic, they do observe certain prohibitions. Many fundamentalists do not smoke, drink alcoholic beverages, dance, or attend movies or plays while we're out yeah, on all, on all accounts there. there. Um, at the most fundamentalist school and institution, these practices are strictly forbidden, which I laugh because I went to a boarding school that was that way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just, I mean, we, there's other paragraphs in here that we'll get to, but I, I do want to hit on these core beliefs and kind of how they, kind of what was said about them and then the reaction that was made in fundamentalism that right. we even see yeah, being made in now. A lot, so, in a lot of ways, fundamentalism says, no, we've got to draw the line in the sand and, and hold this hill on these these doctrines, which, which for the most part are really great doctrines. Yeah. But- uh, yeah. In keeping with traditional Christian doctrines concerning biblical interpretation. Um, let's just start there. Um, so what, yeah. What's the framework we would say that most fundamentalist or 
more right leaning my my personal salvation kind of people or teachers um, lean when it comes to biblical interpretation? And that's an interesting question. We can we can open up a whole can of worms and go on for <laughs> three more episodes just just in this this area. But yeah, there's a lot of conversation here where um, rightly seeking to to protect this this authority of scripture, um, there does sort of become this whatever the most miraculous interpretation of a particular passage is, that's the best passage. That's the best reading of the text or mm -hmm. Whatever, whatever the piecing together or the attributing to a particular author is requires the most amount of faith. That's that's the best, mm -hmm. you know. That's the faithful so, understanding. Yeah. Moses literally wrote all of the right, Pentateuch. right. Moses had to have written yeah. the entire Pentateuch because he did. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe in biblical inerrancy. So yeah, it does. It does, and, and that's a caricature, you know, yeah. as an extreme example of that, but. Um, yeah, that's very much the churches I've been a part of. And, and Job and... Uh, right, Jonah has to be Job a real and Jonah are literal and, stories. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it's... There's... Yeah, keep... Do you have any, any more on that? Because there was a great uh, quote in here that I'd like to... Yeah, go ahead. Read, read, you can go ahead and read the quote. I haven't found it yet. That's why I wanted you to keep talking. Ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um... Okay, yeah, here it is, here it is. And I think this is going to lead to even more history from how this came about right. and fundamentalism, this this split of right. how to frame the Bible. Um, the issue of biblical authority was crucial to American Protestantism, which had inherited the fundamental doctrine of solo scriptura, or scripture alone, which was made famous by Martin Luther in his 95 Theses. One of them was that and other 16th century reformers. Thus, any challenge to scriptural integrity had the potential to undermine Christianity as they understood and practiced it. In response to this challenge, theologians at the Princeton Theological Seminary argued for the verbal, word-for-word, -word inspiration of scripture and affirmed that the Bible was not only infallible, correct when it spoke on matters of faith and morals, but inerrant, correct when it spoke on any matters, including history and science. Right. And, and yeah, so there's, we could go down that rapid trail again. Um, but, but what's going on there? What's, what's in mm -hmm. that? And, um, you know, what, what is the author intending to say in a particular passage? Mm -hmm. is, is that the inspired thing or is whatever inferences you draw from it that we bring you know, our own understanding is, mm -hmm. is that inspired? Did, did God hide secret messages in the scripture that the author of the text wasn't even aware was there? Um, so there, there's some of those conversations and some of those things that, that we can go down that rabbit hole. Um, but you know, Andy Stanley writes, and it's funny, that would be what you just described is, are there things that the author didn't even intend? That would be a critical, very critical theory approach to right, right. very postmodern approach to scripture. Right. Andy Stanley though, uh, writes beautifully about this and he talks about, you know, why, why would somebody be compelled to believe the Bible? Well, because the Bible says it's inspired. Well, that, that's circular reason. Nobody's coming to faith because the Bible's inspired. People are coming to faith because something happened historically 
with the resurrection of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And and for the first several hundred years of Christianity, there was no Bible. So their faith wasn't based on this, this book. Collection of documents. Right. It, it was based on a, a historical event that happened. I mean, because of this happened, now all of a sudden, oh my gosh, what are people saying? What do we have firsthand accounts of this? What are the traditions of this? Oh, this Jesus character is very Jewish. He's writing about these, what do the Jewish scriptures say? And all of a sudden these, these documents begin to matter. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting because you kind of have, um, you know, if somebody doesn't believe that Noah built a literal ark, well, then you're not a real Christian or the cross didn't really happen or Jesus, it wasn't real. Because if one piece falls and the whole deck of cards comes tumbling down, yeah. that, that can yeah. kind of come along with that, that understanding. And that taking the, yeah, I, I just like how it phrased it. The, they argued the, for the verbal inspiration, the word for word. Like that, that is the infallible, that's what's infallible in the scriptures is the literal words that are used on the page, which then you can argue the things about interpretation and meanings. of, And so like that becomes a very interesting discussion, but yeah, your point being that, well, if you're going to say that this is inerrant, that it is without error when it talks about history. And if you're going to take that history, if you're going to take Genesis one through 11 as literal history, Right. Then, yeah, starting to question that really gets scary for a lot of people when they're like, well, if I'm going to question if Adam's a literal character or not, or if, uh, like, what a, the thing I was, is then it's like, well, where did, so if Adam and Eve are the only people ever, this is just a little, like, mini deconstruction right now that I've thought about. So if Adam and Eve are literally the only people on earth ever, like during that time, and then they have Cain and Abel, the only brothers. So there's, if we're going to take it literally, there's four people on earth. Mm-hmm. Cain kills Abel and says, oh man, but God, they're going to hear about what I did and they're going to do the same thing to me. Well, who's they? Sure. Where'd all these people come from? I thought right. there were four people on earth. And so, there's, there's, you know, yeah, there's, there's different ways there's to interpret all that. There's a lot of stuff that, you can but, dig in that. It, but, but at the same time, I think you can hold to inerrancy. Yeah. Literally verbal, word for word, authoritative understanding of the scripture and, and still have an understanding that says, well, yeah, if, if the point of the author is the historicity of what he's saying, then that's inspired. But if that's not the point, mm. you know. Okay. We, okay. So for example... When, when, when they talk about the seat of intellect and emotions and will coming from our intestines or our heart or inner places, and there's no concept of a brain, we don't go to the science class trying to figure out how the heart does the intellectual thinking, right? Yeah. We're not trying to force that upon there because we're not, we understand that that's their understanding of it. And that's not what's the inspired bit. It's what's the message they're trying to communicate. Yeah. So in the same way... <clears throat> If if the intended meaning of the author is is to give you a historical account, then yeah, that's the inspired mm-hmm. meaning. But yeah. but if that's not the primary focus of what the author is trying to teach you or explain to you or help you to understand, then yeah, we can we can say, well, you know, we don't have to find scientific arguments for why there's some sort of vast um, expansive dome keeping the waters from crashing back down on us. 
you know, or trying to identify where the columns of the earth are that hold things up or, you know, this is just how they understood cosmology. And that wasn't yeah. the point of the text. The point of the text yeah. is who God is and how he's different from these other gods yeah. and what he's accomplishing. So, yeah. yeah. And I appreciate your push. That actually confirms kind of how I've been thinking about it. Um, and I was given a great character of like my, you push back on that. Well, and my point was more like the, the people who do, and we can get into this in maybe a second, but just sure. the the push on to completely reject even the evolutionary theory, right? And you know, uh, the Scopes Monkey Trial. They talk about this and that, uh, that in this article too. And so, um, kind of that argument of like the creation account being like what literally happened, like the literality of it. Um, and a, the great question then to ask somebody is, well, what do you mean by literal? Yeah, what is literal? Um, so, yeah, I think that your perspective is is one that still holds to a uh, an inerrancy, um, but also then asks the question, what was the intention? Right. Um, and I and that's something that Marty taught me not too long ago. I thought was really great. Is he talks about he asked like we talk all the time about like the inspired word of God. Well, what what was inspired? What do we mean when we say inspired? And I talked about this on the episode where we talked about um, how do we think about the Bible, but his comment, and I love this, this is what you're saying, was, um, so take a, like, Daniel, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's very confusing, and it's very difficult to parse out and see what's going on. Um, but what's inspired about Daniel is what it was trying to communicate when it was written right when, when it was compiled it was to, to who it was in written its historical to. context mm -hmm. yeah. and that's marty's he's like two questions you ask about inspiration of scripture what did the writer mean when he wrote it and what did the readers read when they read it yeah what did that that thing mean that's what's inspired and when i understand that then i can understand how that can apply to me in my context. And this is very important, especially when you talk about like Paul's letters to churches. Right. Um, and the, the thing that sure. I was counting for earlier with like Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and stuff is like, but people want to take it and be like, no, it means this other thing that wasn't even a construct in the mind of the person who wrote it. Sure. So it's almost doing like dis. it is doing disservice to the scripture itself. Right. Um, and kind of, you, we could argue misusing that idea of scripture alone. Yeah. Cause it's not, it's not, well, even that, as I say that and think about it, even that phrase like scripture alone is misguiding at some level. Cause it's just like, I don't know. It's just right. like, and what some, is this? There's some questions. Without taking into the other context there's of things. There's some questions that so, go in that. Like, can I understand? Is it still, am I still physically or mentally able to understand what that original yes, exactly. uh, interpretation is? And, and I think I think that, that we're not going to get it perfect. But yeah, I mean, God, I believe the Holy Spirit helps illuminate his mm -hmm. word. I, I think that the work that scholars and historians and archaeologists, all of this builds this more and more and more as we find out things about the near ancient near east we we have better tools to help us understand what what's how they would have read the text and what's going on there and those are good and useful things i don't think that 
you can just go home and sit with the Bible in your closet and read it over and over and over again, and you're going to understand the proper interpretation for everything. Because we're approaching it not just with Scripture alone oftentimes. We're, mm-hmm. we, we have to approach it with our own assumptions, our own cultural biases and perspectives and worldviews. And um, yeah, so we we don't we don't just read it as scripture alone. scripture i mean we're reading it in english right we're yeah. already allowing somebody else to interpret it for us mm. uh, even even mm. just in the way we break apart verses and use little headings that mm-hmm. tell you what it's about those are interpretive headings um and yeah there's so many times where back at, you know back to our conversation of what happens when we die or what's the gospel you know what what is eternal life mm-hmm. or or what is it the the age to come what what's the difference when does eternal life begin when does the age to come begin um, or the eon to, to come? So yeah, some of those interpretive things that we read in English and we just, with our assumptions, our worldview, our understanding of the gospel, we read one set of ways where it's not until you begin to really understand how they would have heard it that that the real better interpretation comes out of that. Yeah, but the whole point in this section here, and I want to keep Pull referencing back, back, is is uh, that there was this great movement um, in, in reference to what Luther did with the Catholic church in fighting for good things right. and fighting for saying, look, if you're just, this is what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of. He's right. like, look, you say that you love the scriptures and you love God, but you just discount them and, and say you don't discount them, but you make your traditions a wall to what they actually meant. And I think to give him all the credit you can like that's what he was pointing at right with with the catholic church was look you have all these things going on that aren't with in line with what the scripture is trying to say they're actually in some senses antithetical to what the scripture is saying so then his but then his even reaction was well it's it's only this and then how that's become to be interpreted and the finalist movement was yeah we take that literally word for word to say that this is what the Bible means. This is what the scripture is. This is what it means to say it's inspired and all that. And then there's, there's a lot of other things that come from that, but I think that is a big, I hear it all the time. Just things about like, uh, well, the only truth you're going to find is what's in the Bible. The only truth worth knowing is what's sure. in the Bible. Sure. And when you think about it for five minutes, it's kind of like, well, that's pretty narrow-minded. But right, the way but, yeah, we understand I get the what Bible they're trying to get based at. on the observations we make. Yeah. yeah, rest of life. But yeah, that it's. I think it's helpful for us to understand culturally, you know, where where we come from, what's our heritage as evangelicals, and what kind of how we got to the where we're at is why we think certain ways. I think it helps us extend grace to folks that that may think about things differently than us too. Just to understand what what kind of heritage of faith they're coming from and, and where those ideas came from. They always say they go through it really life as a female. So Dog that would be me. To, you know, she said let's go to Hong Kong but I'm and, only 18. Um, and, and yeah, they're good things, but there's there's a whole other side to it. And the conservative fundamentalist perspective and then hopefully by then we will have the second part of this conversation uh, recorded and I'll be working on that 
You can follow me on Instagram at Luke underscore Byler 816. You can find us on Instagram at the Belfast podcast. You can also find us on Facebook at the Belfast podcast and on Instagram at the Belfast podcast. You can email me at belfastpodcast at gmail.com. Please find us on YouTube. Give us a subscribe. Give me a like and just show the support. Uh, Give us a rate. Give us a review on iTunes. It always helps. Uh, Thank you very much for listening and we will see you in the next one.